0: This is a story of who we were. How we got here, landed Roger tranquility And where we are going. You've got mail. So join us. As we take history Off the Page up the tight top still in my top, sitting courtside, nicks and nets, give me high five. Nigga, I be spiked out, I could trip a referee. Tell by my attitude that I'm most definitely from no. That was Jay Z featuring Alicia Keys, the iconic 2009 hit Empire State of Mind, which is, of course, one of the great songs of the many songs about the city of New York, also known, of course, as the Big Apple, Gotham, The City So Nice, They Named It Twice. And, of course, we have all these songs and all these nicknames for New York because we all love it. New York is such a powerful center. In the modern world, of not just finance, not just politics, but of course of culture, of art. You know, when when I talk about New York, if I say Broadway, if I say the Yankees, Times Square, Madison Avenue, Wall Street, the Met, MoMA, how many of those places do you recognize even if you've never been to New York? If I say, think about the Empire State Building. How many of you can just picture in your mind already what the Empire State Building looks like because you've seen it so much in movies, in pictures, in magazines? New York, again, is so celebrated, so central to the modern mindset. And of course, as I said, think about how many songs are out there that just talk about celebrating New York, loving New York. If you were going to make a list of songs, what might be on that list? Obviously, Empire State of Mind the top of my list. Many of you will say, well, how could you not go with Sinatra's New York, New York? One of the classic, of course, songs by Sinatra. Of course, again, about being in the Big Apple. He was from uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, just across the river. Many of you would probably say, well, if we're talking about New York, another New Yorker, Billy Joel, New York State of Mind. Some of you might say, well, no, you too, a little bit more modern band, maybe. Maybe about the same uh, time period as Billy Joel. U2, Angel of Harlem, fantastic song there. Of course, it's not only Americans that are singing about New York. U2 is an Irish band. We also have Sting singing about what it's like to be an Englishman in New York. We also have Madonna singing I Love New York. Think about an iconic song like Duke Ellington and Take the A Train. We even have a Taylor Swift entry in this contest, right? Taylor Swift, welcome to New York, welcome to New York. Everybody loves New York. And I am no exception to this. When I graduated college, the first thing I did was I said, I am going to live in New York City because it is exciting, because there's so many things to do there, because it's so cool, because I can get a job there. There's lots of jobs, obviously. My parents said, you're crazy. What are you doing? Don't go to New York. You have to get a job first. And I said, don't worry. I'll figure it out. I'm young. New York is awesome. This is going to be perfect. In fact, it is not just an American phenomenon to think about New York City and to lionize and, and kind of uh, almost worship in a cultural sense the idea of New York. When I was a sophomore in college, I went to stay with a French family in Strasbourg, France. And living in this little apartment in Strasbourg, they had taken one of the rooms and the wallpapering of one of the rooms was basically just scenes from New York. So it is such an iconic city, such a globalized city, right? If, if we obviously think about the tragedy of 9-11, 9-11 is not just an American tragedy or trauma. It is not just an American event. It is a global event. When global leaders say, we are all New Yorkers now, they're not just saying that as, as paying lip service, Everybody is in New York, all the different nationalities, all the different ethnicities. And so, again, there is this amazing attraction to the city of New York that is part and parcel, I would argue, of the modern world, certainly the 21st century and the latter half of the 20th century as well. We all love New York. Or perhaps I should say we almost all love New York. Because one of the little ironies is, if you actually spend time living in New York, in the city, whether you're talking about Manhattan, whether you're talking about Brooklyn, whether you're talking about Staten Island, Queens, if you actually spend time talking to New Yorkers, especially if they're in their 30s or later, you'll find that quite a lot of the people who actually live there hate it. They hate living there. there's obviously some pretty good reasons for this. New York is crowded. There are literally millions and millions of people. You don't really have a lot of time to yourself in the city of New York. You know another nickname, right? It's the city that never sleeps. Well, when you're in your 20s and you don't have a family, being in the city that never sleeps is pretty awesome. When you're in your 30s or 40s and you have a family, and a job, and lots of responsibilities, being in a city that never goes to sleep can be kind of annoying. Think about something as mundane as going to the grocery store. If you live in the big city, you very rarely just go into the grocery store, buy what you need, and leave. You often have to wait in line. And if you've ever lived in a big city, there is a lot of line waiting that goes on. Even worse is trying to drive a larger vehicle around Or especially, even if you have a small vehicle, parking. Trying to find parking in Manhattan is a nightmare. If you're lucky, you can pay $20 or $30 an hour to park in a garage. Or if you want to try to find a space on the side of the street, you're going to drive around literally sometimes for hours. The idea that you are looking for parking and it takes you 45 minutes is not a rare thing in parts of New York City. You might say, who wants to take a car? You don't need a car when you live in New York. I didn't have a car when I lived in New York. Because we have the subway. Which is great, except if you've ever ridden the subway during rush hour, it is an amazingly claustrophobic experience. Right? You have, again, thousands of people packing onto these train cars. There is no room. There is no idea of personal space. You're just all basically packed in there together. And maybe this would be okay if it was just normal people. But of course, when you're packed into these subway cars, statistically, there are going to be some people who are rude. There are going to be some people that are a little bit creepy. As any woman who's grown up in New York knows, if you get on the subway during rush hour there is a pretty decent chance that at least at some point in your lifetime, you will get groped, right? Everybody's all pushed in there together. Oops, sorry, fell onto you, touched your breast. This is not uncommon in big cities, in part because of just how many people are there. And of course, again, some people are a little bit creepy. Um, You also have stories, of course, of people being flashed on the subway. Again, if you talk to a woman who's grown up in New York, there's a pretty decent chance she'll tell you yeah, at some point in my lifetime, I was flashed by some creepy guy. Now, even if you don't have the issue of being flashed by people, it still takes forever to get anywhere. If you live in New York City, even moving around some of the boroughs, unless you're on a direct train line, that's going to take you 30 minutes, 40 minutes, could take you an hour or even more. If you live in Brooklyn and you're trying to make it over to Manhattan, you're going to really enjoy having an iPod. You're going to enjoy having a book to read. You're going to have cell phones now that you can uh, you know, play games on and things like that because you're going to be on the subway for a long time. And of course, it's not just New York like this, right? This is Berlin. This is Tokyo. This is Beijing. This is uh, all over the world, Rio, right? Anywhere with a subway, anywhere with a large city, it's going to take a while to get somewhere. Now, another fun part about living in the big city is, of course, it is super expensive. And perhaps nothing is more expensive than your apartment, your living space. The idea of paying thousands of dollars a month for the privilege of living in 400 square feet, most of us would say, wow, that really sucks. But people living in big cities, especially places like New York, places like Manhattan or today Brooklyn, you don't have a choice. How many New Yorkers growing up today who do not already own their apartments, how many of them aspire to buy an apartment in downtown Manhattan? My guess is very few of them because it's going to cost millions of dollars just to buy a tiny little apartment. Wouldn't it be much better to try to move somewhere else, move to a different city, move uh, to the countryside, to the suburbs, right? And this is part of the reason people move to the suburbs, because there's space because I can buy my own house, and because it's, of course, more affordable. Finally, of course, even though it tends to be a little bit exaggerated, there is also, obviously, a seedier side to life in the big city. We're talking, of course, about crime. We're talking about drugs. We're talking about homelessness. Right? Homelessness, seedier, you know, obviously there's complications that go into how people become homeless, but the idea of poverty, If you live in suburbia, you don't see poverty. It's far away. Maybe you 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 read an article about it in the newspaper or, or online, or you heard a podcast about it. But the idea of poverty is very, very far from your daily experiences. You don't see people living in tents, living in cardboard boxes. In the big city, you see a lot more of that, right? Those people are there, and you can talk to them. You can find out more about them. There's a really great... Series that was started many years ago on Facebook by a group called, um, or by a photographer. The name of it is Humans of New York. The guy started talking to individual New Yorkers, talking to people from all different walks of life, finding out what is their story. And you can do that in New York because everybody is in there together in a way that you don't find in other places. So people are basically, again, they're less isolated in the big city and less isolation can often mean annoyance, can often mean frustration. Again, statistically, if you put 7 million people in a city, some of them will turn to crime. It is harder to isolate yourself from those people. So, to bring all this together, life in the big city is both amazing and frustrating, intoxicating and suffocating, even simultaneously. Now, if these contradictions sound familiar to those of you, who listened to our last episode, it's because they are also emotions many Europeans experienced at the beginning of the 20th century, during a period in which their society began to fully embrace life in the modern world, a period that was defined by speed, technology, and mobility. And for some, this was incredible. This provoked a feeling of being on the edge of the future. It provoked optimism about what life was like and what human beings had achieved. But for others, it was a nightmare, as individuals disappeared within the maelstrom of mass society. But we'll get into that more in our episode today on Modernism's Lab, The Metropolis. So let's start by talking about the way that cities have changed since the last time we were talking kind of about urban history. If you'll recall, we had industrialization that occurred. We had this massive migration of young people to cities in the 1830s, 1840s. We talked about crowding. We talked about crime. We talked about the lack of infrastructure. And usually when you read histories of the 19th and 20th century, the, the topic of urbanization kind of stops about 1850, 1860. We had all this overcrowding. We invented new ways to deal with it. We came up with urban planning. We came up with uh, new ways to treat water. We developed sewage systems. We solved the whole crisis. Urbanization is over. We don't need to talk about it anymore. This kind of mindset, however, misses the fact that this sort of exponential growth that happens in cities, it doesn't stop in the 1850s and 60s. In fact, European cities keep growing and growing and growing and growing at an exponential rate into the early 20th century. Just to give you some numbers here, consider that between 1862 and 1925, the population of London increases from 2.8 million to 7.7 million. Now, 2.8 million people is already a big city, but 7.7 million is even larger. And this is not just sort of an English phenomenon. Paris will grow from 1.8 million to 4.8 million. Berlin goes from a not-quite-so-sleepy-little-hamlet of 582,000. That's still a pretty decent-sized city. But it grows to over 4 million by the time you get to the start of the 1920s. St. Petersburg in Russia goes from 565,000 to 1.4 million. Madrid, 303,000 to 791,000. So in many cases, you're talking basically about the tripling of a population within one person's lifetime in the city, which of course raises the question, okay, if we're tripling the number of people living in the city, where do we put them all? Well, the traditional answer, of course, is just to continue expanding outwards. If you live in the United States today, especially in the Sun Belt or in the Southeast, places like the Carolinas, Arizona, Texas. You're quite familiar with this concept because that's what's going on right now. Cities in the United States, in the South, are growing. And they just keep pushing outwards and outwards and outwards, building more and more developments. Maybe people will telecommute. Maybe they'll work in more suburban settings. But we're witnessing this tremendous, long-term, sustained construction boom here in the United States, especially, again, in the South and the Southwest. Well, in the 1920s, cities basically grow in similar fashions. They begin building outwards, so much so that they start literally swallowing up little towns and villages that had been historically on the outskirts of those cities. You think about a place like Paris, we talked a couple weeks ago about the Moulin Rouge and uh, what a wonderful neighborhood it was, Montmartre, so much uh, art going on there, so much uh, cultural activity. Montmartre was its own little village before the 1850s. It basically got swallowed up by the city of Paris because Paris keeps growing and growing and growing. Another city that we can see this trend in really well is the city of Berlin. If you've ever been to Berlin, you've probably visited some of these sort of central districts that were the historic heart of Berlin. We're talking about Mitte, which is like the middle, Wedding, Tiergarten, Hallisches Tor, Prenzlauer Tor, Friedrichshain, and Lichtenberg. Now, if you speak German, you'll notice that some of those have the word Tor in it, which was literally where the gates were to the city in the medieval period so that you could go out, go to different places. But if you look at a modern map of Berlin, Prenzlauer Tor is not on the outskirts of Berlin. It's very much in the middle today. Because again, basically what happens is the city of Berlin keeps growing and growing and growing across the second half of the 19th century. And it literally starts swallowing up other little towns and villages. If you look at a map today of Berlin, you'll notice places like Tempelhof, Lichterfelde, Spandau, Pankau, Stieglitz. All of these are now kind of wrapped up in the greater city of Berlin. In fact, if you go to some of the subway stations, the S-Bahn stations that are in the outskirts of the city, they literally look like train stations. And this isn't because, well, they just thought we'll build this one to look like a train station. It's because, once upon a time, these were independent towns and villages, and they just had a separate train station. But over time, again, the city has grown and grown and grown. In the case of Berlin, in 1920, this resulted in the passage of something called the Greater Berlin Act, which basically incorporates these other areas into the main city of Berlin. I mentioned Paris just a second ago. Uh, Another aspect of this kind of growth in Paris, they had built this uh, city wall in the 1840s to defend the city. It's called the Tears Wall. What do we do in the immediate post-war era? We're going to tear down all those fortifications because the city needs to keep growing and growing and growing. In fact, if you go and look at a map of basically any decent-sized medieval European city today, you'll notice these ring roads that go around the edges of the city or even the interior of the city in some cases. And those were built basically where the old city walls were. So you can literally see on the map this exponential sort of physical growth of cities moving outwards. This is one of the reasons, of course, it takes forever to get someplace in the big cities because they are massively sized. Now, as these cities grow, they not only expand in a kind of physical sense, outward, but they also begin to change architecturally as well. They begin incorporating some of the modernist ideas that we mentioned in our last podcast episode. Now, there's a number of different ways that cities do this. Of course, it depends. Are we talking about the 1880s? Are we talking about 1900? The architectural styles will change a little bit over time. But the number one style that comes into being for these cities after world war I is known as art deco and art deco is a very interesting style because instead of having all this anxiety about the modern age instead of feeling about you know well psychology and, and you know what's going to happen and fear and anxiety art deco is incredibly optimistic and positive and celebrates the notion of having arrived at the future it is all about a world defined by technology, by progress, and by luxury. Now, the name Art Deco comes from the 1925 World's Fair, where they first kind of exhibit this style, which is known as the Exposition des Arts Décoratifs. So Art Deco comes from Art Decoratif. Now, why this happens in the early 1920s is partly due to the timing, right? This is the post-war era. It's also kind of a historical accident. Basically, as modernism first appears around 1900, the movement is really dominated by painters, right? It's dominated by the Picassos of the world, the people that are really playing with tradition and destroying tradition and breaking barriers. And so it kind of leaves out people that are working in the decorative arts. We're talking to some extent about architecture, but especially interior design, glasswork, jewelry, right? There's lots of artists that work in mediums beyond just painting. And so they, they kind of say, yeah, we need our recognition. We need our moment in the sun, so to speak. So they start trying to put together a decorative arts exhibition. But of course, timing gets in the way. Nobody wants to do this in the middle of World War I. And so they kind of have to wait until the war is over, till some of those turbulent moments that we talked about have have kind of ridden themselves out. And so it's in 1925 that they finally get to put on this Art Deco exhibition. Now, if you've never seen pictures from it, I highly recommend going online. Uh, You can just use Google and, and check out some of the images that come out of this exposition. It's really kind of breathtaking. It's fun. It's creative. It has a sort of classiness to it looking back from the perspective of the 21st century. One of the things that these artists do is they say, we're not going to completely break with past forms. We're not into revolution like the Cubists were completely, but we want to create a hybrid between the old and the new. And so one of the ways they do this in terms of new styles is they love the idea of using reinforced concrete. Now, reinforced concrete has somewhat of the look of the old kind of stone architecture. But what's nice about it is that it's very flexible. It's more adaptable, right? I can make different shapes. I don't have to have everything being square or triangular if I'm working with concrete. I can basically do whatever I want, right? I use steel, put concrete on the outside, make any form that I want. If I want to have a curve, if I want to have you know something even in between, I can do this. Now, the Art Deco movement also featured kind of decorative style, also celebrated the idea of excess, you know, wanted to add little bits and pieces here to make it more decorative than just functional. But unlike the Gothic style or the Baroque style where it tends to be, you know, leaves, gargoyles, little things like that, you get things like mosaics. You get ceramics. One of the really cool ideas that they get is, hey, we've got the electric light now. It's only been around for about 15, 20 years, but we have electric lighting. Let's put hundreds of lights on the outsides of buildings. What would that look like? Now, on the inside, they also do quite a bit of work. They're, again, celebrating the idea of luxury, celebrating the idea of plenty. They use things like crystals. They use rugs. They use exotic materials like ivory. And they do this not in the sort of Victorian way, where if you've ever been inside of a Victorian home, especially if you're talking about someone that was fairly wealthy, they're really kind of stuffy. There's literally just like a lot of stuff mounted on the walls, pictures, animal horns, uh, mirrors. There's just, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of clutter in the Victorian home. The Art Deco style doesn't want to clutter. The Art Deco style wants to shock. The Art Deco style wants to be, for, for lack of a better term, it just wants to be loud. It's, it's very much like the 70s in some ways, right? Where the idea is we want people to notice all the stuff on the walls. We want them to be impressed. Now, there are a number of specific examples we could go into giving you a sense of, again, what the Art Deco movement was all about. But I think the one that that really stands out that, that we have to mention as the example of not just Art Deco, but again, this moment of the 1920s and of the metropolis itself is the idea of the skyscraper. Now, like many of the trends that we've been discussing, the first skyscrapers don't just come about in the 1920s they go back as far as probably the 10-story home insurance building in Chicago in 1884. You can get into all kinds of debates about what is a skyscraper, how tall does it have to be to kind of count. A lot of historians would argue that this uh, home insurance building in Chicago in 1884 is the first real modern skyscraper. But the ambitions of the early skyscrapers are somewhat limited Due to things like building codes. You know, people had never had more than a 10-story building before. What happens if there's a fire and you're in a 10-story building? Does everybody just die? Do they just jump out of the windows? I saw after uh, 9-11 in New York, people started selling parachutes. The idea that if you were involved in another 9-11-style attack and you were trapped, you could break your window and then jump out with a parachute to save yourself. Well, In 1884, they haven't thought about all this, right? So, well, let's try it out. Let's see how far we can build. They also tend to be a lot less decorative. Buildings in in 1884, as you're starting to build the first skyscrapers, the question is, how tall can I make it? Not what does it look like? And so they tend to be kind of boxy, tend to be made of brick, tend not to be so exciting. And there's another reason that we don't have skyscrapers really before the 1920s, which is that if you build a skyscraper, you might obscure or you will certainly change the silhouette of your city. And in the 19th century, and even previous to that, the most important thing that one sees on the skyline of a city is, of course, the cathedral. I want to see the the roof of my church. I want to see the steeple on top of a church because most of these cities are in Christian areas of one type or another. And so, of course, that's the thing that you want to look up to. In the Middle Ages, one of the reasons that they build these giant cathedrals is not just to celebrate, you know, religion, to to dedication to God, but it also gives you a really nice vantage point to see what's going on around your city. If you happen to be outside the city, you don't have your GPS— Being able to look up and see, oh, okay, there's the the roof of the cathedral, there's the the top of the spire, that can help direct you around. So you don't really want to obscure that. Um, Even today in the city of Charleston, where I grew up, in South Carolina, you're not allowed to build above a certain height without special permission because they don't want to obscure the church steeples in the city. Of course, after World War I, after all the death and destruction, after all the pessimism, after all the cynicism, after all this kind of pent-up rebellious attitude, the idea that, well, we don't want to build too high because we don't want to obscure the cathedral uh, roof or, again, the, the steeple, that doesn't make sense anymore. And so one can argue that skyscrapers essentially become the new cathedrals or the cathedrals, if you will, of the modern era. They are tall. They are big. But they are also decorated. They're also meant to be a symbol of achievement, a sign of the wealth of the city, a sign of status, of affluence, of technological progress. We started this podcast off by talking a lot about New York because, again, it's so global, it's so iconic. Think about two of the skyscrapers built in the early 1930s in the city of New York. We're talking here about the 77-floor Chrysler Building, which was completed in 1930 in the 102-story Empire State Building, which is about 1,250 feet tall. The Empire State Building is not just a building. It's not just a place to put offices or apartments or something like that. The Empire State Building is a work of art. The Chrysler Building, the top of the Chrysler Building, is beautiful. It is a work of art. It is meant to be more than just, again, something that is functional It is a celebration of modernism. Now, these buildings that I just gave examples of are American. We also have buildings built in Europe itself. Uh, Right before we have the Chrysler Building and the Empire State Building, in 1926 in Madrid, they start work on the Edificio Telefonica, which is a little less ambitious. It's only 14 stories, 287 feet tall. But it becomes the tallest building in Europe until World War II. So that's a big deal. And later on, of course, they start building more of these skyscrapers. Um, they're less common in European cities, again, because of the history, because of the heritage of a lot of medium-sized European towns. But if you go to a Paris today, if you go to a Warsaw, if you go to a Rome, right, you'll see a lot of skyscrapers. Okay, so we've talked about the idea of Where are we putting all the people in the big city as it again triples in terms of population? This creates a sort of second problem, especially as we expand outward, which is how are all these people going to get around? How are they going to move from one place to another? It's easy when you live in a town of 10,000 people to, to go from one end to the other if the town is only a mile or two wide. But what if we have... A city the size of, again, Paris, London, Berlin, Madrid. You can't walk across the city of Madrid. So how are we going to deal with this challenge? One of the first solutions that people come up with is in the 1850s and 60s and into the 70s is the idea that we're going to use urban planning to solve this problem. And we're going to deal with this on a future podcast episode specifically about urban planning in the 1850s, uh, because the modern cities of Paris and Barcelona are especially defined and determined. The, the, their layouts today, their character today, a lot of it happens in the middle of the 19th century. But basically, urban planners say we need to open up space. We need to create some broad avenues. We need to, um, in Barcelona, one of the things they do is they cut the corners off of buildings, try to get a little bit more light, a little bit more air. So we have some pretty major reconstructions that happen in the 1850s. But these kind of address the most egregious symptoms of life in the big city. They don't really solve the problem of how does one move about, again, a Paris, a London, a Vienna, especially as we start getting into the the millions of people living there. Now, an early solution to the problem of transport was the idea of the ferry. Right? If we put a bunch of people on a single boat, we can move that boat around. It moves a large number of people. And so if we happen to be in a place where we have a lot of canals, where we have a big river, then, then ferries and boats are going to be able to transport people and, and move them around. The problem, of course, in trying to translate this into the land is that you, you just don't have machines that are capable of, of pulling all that weight. Right? If I get in a boat, I don't have to worry about weight so much because the the water is supporting the weight and kind of taking it away. So we do have people experimenting in the 17th century in a place like Paris with the idea of what becomes known as the omnibus. So basically we're going to create not just a carriage for, you know, the Marquis de Lafayette and his wife or, you know, his cousin, but let's create a large carriage that can move 20 or 30 people around. This effort doesn't work because it's really hard, again, to move that weight around. You're talking about streets that are not paved in the modern sense, right? If you've ever driven down a a, a cobblestone street, it's not a lot of fun to deal with. Imagine doing it on wooden wheels with no suspension. So it's really not until the beginning of the 19th century that something like the omnibus begins to be seen with regularity on the streets of Europe. Now, another possibility for mass transit, of course, becomes the railroad. We talked about this a little bit. We started to see in the 1860s and 70s, one of the reasons that cities can grow is because the railroad will connect them with those little towns and villages that were previously sort of on the outskirts. And so we see as early as 1863, work on something like the London Underground. The London Underground, a series of tunnels built underneath the ground. We'll put a steam-powered locomotive in there. And we'll basically have like a little train that can carry people around within the city as opposed to in between the cities. Now, it takes until 1884 for them to complete what's known as the Circle Line, but once it's done, commuters have an easy way to navigate London's Westminster District. In the 1890s, they'll continue with expansion, and they'll also start to move away from steam-powered locomotives towards the modern sort of way that most subways are run, which is through electricity. If you think about it, this makes a lot of sense, right? Steam-powered locomotive is going to generate a lot of smoke. If you're generating a lot of smoke inside of a tunnel, where does the smoke go? It's not really a natural way to get rid of the smoke. So the development of electric trains right after the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, this is a huge development. We also have more advanced machinery. We can dig deeper tunnels. And so we can start to move around to different uh, areas of the big cities, especially in places like London. Now, New York also experiments with the idea of the subway. Uh, Basically, in the late 1860s, a guy named Alfred Ellie Beach makes an attempt to build a series of pneumatic tubes. So basically, the trains are not going to be driven by steam power. They're going to be driven by the, the force of air pushing people around, right? seems very futuristic, especially for 1869. They built a couple of kind of test tubes in the early 1870s, but by that point, it it doesn't seem like it's going to work. Not only do you have the technological limitations that are, are inhibiting it, there's a lot of political resistance to it as well. And so it's only in 1900 that work starts on the modern MTA or subway system. The first station in New York will open in 1904. The timeline for other major cities around the world is somewhat similar. If you're talking about Paris, uh, you have a similar story to New York. There is the desire to do it at the end of the 19th century. Basically, it only starts around 1900. Uh, This is, again, because of infighting, arguments about what type of system, how is it going to compete with other transportation modes. Another thing that, uh, that does get brought up, which is a kind of dirty little secret that also exists to some extent today, is the fear generated by the subway system. If you're talking about your 19th century city, to some extent, even if you're talking about your 20th century city, there's a desire, especially among wealthier people, to be isolated within the city. So you want your gated community. You want your your area where you're the boss and the people that are, are very similar to you. You don't want different people coming in. And so in a place like Paris, for example, there is actually a lot of anxiety. If working class people can get on the subway and come to my neighborhood, well, that might be a really big problem. Not just in the sort of aesthetic sense, but what if they decide to launch a revolution? You know, the revolution is not about to be televised just yet, but if they can get on trains and come to our uh, places that we live, well, that, that's going to be pretty scary. Some other major cities that one could mention, Istanbul, 1875, with one of the first subway systems, or I should say uh, mass transit systems, Chicago, 1892, with the uh, very famous L, Berlin, 1902, and Madrid kind of bringing up the rear a little bit in 1919. But the point is that we see the development of mass transit, mass transit becomes the solution to living in the big city. A lot of reasons why people like mass transit, right? Mass transit is empowering. We saw in our discussion of the Soviet Union, the way that the the metro system there is used not just to move people about, but is celebrated as an act of modernity, an act of beauty, an act of technological and cultural achievement. On the other hand, as we just talked about at the beginning of the podcast episode, Riding around in the subway can often be a very unpleasant experience. Or at least, maybe often is the wrong word. There are times, occasionally, that it can become unpleasant. And so, do you like riding the subway? When I lived in New York, I loved the subway. Plenty of New Yorkers love the subway. Or they have a love-hate relationship with the subway, but they, they like it enough. You will meet people that will never ride the subway. It's dark, it's dirty, it's crowded. We just went through COVID, right? If you imagine COVID transmission in the subway is going to be pretty high because everybody's packed in together. So a love-hate relationship, right? But this is what modernity is. Of course, another big challenge to living in the big city, especially with so many people packed in together next to each other, is that you don't really know your neighbors that well. There's a weird sense of at some point there are so many people that you actually feel more isolated in the big city than you might in a small town uh, or even a village, of course. And the issue with not knowing your neighbors isn't just, well, you know, I just don't know who lives in apartment 4B. It also creates anxiety. It also creates worries about crime. If I am anonymous because I live in this sea of mass society— Then there's things that I can get away with being in a crowd that I couldn't get away with in sort of normal society. And so there are some foundations. There is some anxiety generated, obviously, about the idea of crime. There's also stereotypes about the crime ridden cities. I'm recording this podcast in April of 2023. I know there's about to be uh, some congressional hearings that are going to take place in New York City that are designed to highlight uh, the the idea of massive crime in cities, right? This is a trope that we hear. It's not something new. When I think about the idea of crime in the cities, I think of this wonderful scene from the 1986 comedy Crocodile Dundee, which if you've never seen Crocodile Dundee, there's this uh, Australian man uh, played by Paul Hogan. He's kind of a redneck. He uh, becomes famous for uh, basically like wrestling an alligator and surviving for so long in the outback on his own. And so this New York journalist goes to cover it, and he kind of saves her life, and she's like, well, you know, you've got to come to New York. Everybody wants to come to New York. Let me do a second story, and this will be about how amazing New York is. And so it becomes one of these comedies where it's like, let's take the simple guy from the countryside, let's throw him into kind of Beverly Hillbilly style, the big city, and let's make lots of jokes about, you know, him encountering life in the big city. And so the scene that I'm referring to is actually an attempted mugging. Uh, the, the character, Crocodile Dundee, is out with his, uh, his... at that point, she's, uh, she's kind of the, the tour guide, if you will, the reporter. They kind of fall in love with each other because, of course, men and women can't be around each other without falling in love. And in this case, the two actually, the actor and actress, actually got married, so they did really fall in love. But anyways, so they're out for a lovely evening stroll in New York. How nice, whatever. And then, of course, a young man comes over, and he pulls a knife on him. And it's one of those 1980s, like, switchblade knives. So this was, like, a really cool thing in the 80s. You had a knife where the blade was concealed, and then you'd kind of flick it, and the blade would pop open, and you looked really cool. And so this kid does this to Crocodile Dundee, and his, like, kind of hoodlum buddies are behind him. And Dundee responds by uh, pulling out a large hunting knife. And as he does it, he says, That's not a knife. This is a knife. Apologies for my terrible Australian accent there, right? But it's this giant hunting knife. It's like 12 inches long. Uh, it's super thick, right? And then he kind of messes the kid up a little bit and the teens run away. And, of course, this becomes an iconic moment in the film because, ah, of course, cities are full of criminals. Of course, they're full of crime. Of course, if you walk around in New York at night, you're going to get mugged, which isn't quite true. Obviously, you can get mugged, but it's not like a 100% chance of mugging. Now, again, from a mathematical standpoint, too, there is some, some truth to the idea that there's crime in cities. If you have 7 million people living in a story, some of them will probably be jerks. Some of them will probably be a little unhospitable, will probably break laws. But again, it's also a function of psychology. It's also a function of this idea That living in a mass society surrounded by strangers, you simply don't know who everyone is. You can't trust that the person living down the block, the person living in a different neighborhood but they can come over on the subway, you can't trust that they're not necessarily a drug dealer, a rapist, a murderer, someone that can do that and then blend into the background of all the anonymous souls that one drifts by day after day in a place like New York. Now, a great historical example, of course, of this sort of psychological phenomenon is Jack the Ripper. And we talked about Jack the Ripper in our podcast on urbanization in the 19th century. But the cliff note version, for those of you who haven't listened to that episode, is that in the fall of 1888, someone starts murdering uh, at least five, perhaps more prostitutes, and they live in this London slum called Whitechapel. And so for many sort of middle-class Victorians, the, these grisly murders, they're, they're, the, the bodies are mutilated. Right? It's very sensationalized. They start to associate crime and poverty, and they start to say, okay, we need to do something about poverty in these slums. It's not just enough to let these people uh, live their own lives and, and suffer the consequences. They would argue of, of having made poor choices. Today, a lot of us would say, well, there's a lot of structural issues going on there as well. There's a lot of uh, difficulties getting out of poverty. So the point is basically in the cities, we do have crime. At times, there can be lots of crime. At times, it's it's more of a projection. But, you know, there's kind of this this combination of of the real and the psychological that then evokes anxiety about what's going on in the big city. So it's not surprising that as this is happening in the middle of the 19th century— you start to see cultural critics just like you have today who argue that cities are unhealthy places that urbanization itself breeds sin breeds disease and that really you want to stay away from the city because the city is corrupting the city is degenerate now by the 1920s much of this criticism has been overcome by economic reality people are moving to the cities in large numbers they keep moving Right, they, they have better experiences in the 19-teens and 1920s than they had in the 1840s. But the anxiety is still there. And so another great example taken from the 1920s and 30s, which is kind of the period that we're talking about today, another example of this psychological anxiety is German director Fritz Lang's classic 1931 film, M. This is, for those of you who have never seen it, one of the greatest serial killer films of all time. It's one of the first, to be honest, one of the first serial killer films that's out there. M tells the story of a guy named Hans Beckert, who is this elusive monster who preys on young girls. And to kind of drive this point home, the film begins with this this terrific but also terrifying scene where this mother is, is there and, She's waiting for her daughter, Elsie, to come home from school and all the other kids come home and, and Elsie just never shows up. And as you can imagine, the emotions of the mom at this point, right? At first kind of annoyed, like, you know, where are you? Why are you late? What's going on? And then as any parent will tell you, when you get in these situations with your kids, you start to get a little bit of doubt creeps into your mind. Okay, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm a little bit worried. You know, I'm sure the kid is right around the corner, but, but where are they? And then, of course, by the end of the evening, the mother comes to realize every parent's worst nightmare, right? They find uh, the body of, of her daughter who has been killed. So the movie starts out with this kind of search for the killer. You don't know in the beginning who it is. They're trying to find it. But despite using the most advanced forensic techniques, the police are unable to catch the killer. And this leads to not just a question of anxiety, But again, as we saw with uh, Master Yoda, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. What happens in the city of Berlin where the movie is set, during M, people begin to turn on each other. There's a great scene where you have this group of friends. They're sitting around drinking as as Germans do and and especially did in the early 1930s. And then one of them kind of looks at the other one and is like, well, you could be the murderer. And the other one says, well, how do I know it wasn't you? They start fighting with each other. There's another great scene where an old man is talking to a young woman and, and he says, oh, what time is it? Because he doesn't have a watch on. Uh, I can't remember if he was blind or not. But but he doesn't know what time. is. So, you know, he's talking to the girl. Someone else sees old man talking to a young girl. That must be suspicious. Let me get the police. Forget the police. I'm just going to beat this guy up because I know he's the one that did it. And so, basically, over the course of the movie, Berliners begin to turn on each other and things are degenerating. Until finally, the mob itself starts to say, Look, we can't carry out all of our other criminal activities because there's this sick person out there. And so, they're going to try to track him down and try to find him. And so, actually, the way that they discover him are some street urchins that begin to notice where he is. There's some other stuff that I won't go into right now about how they find him. But eventually, they track him down. And the criminals, in an ironic turn of events, arrest him and put him on trial at this kangaroo court. And so it's in this moment at the end of the film that Long begins to explore the psychology behind mass murder, which is something that's new. The criminal, Beckert, responds to the charges by breaking down. And he starts to, again, discuss these sort of psychological factors compelling his behavior. One point he says, I cannot help myself. I have no control over this evil thing that is inside of me, the fire, the voices, the torment. And so without giving away the end of the film, it kind of raises this question, right? It raises this awareness. There are people out there in society, not just in the big city, but all over. There's not many of them, thank goodness, but there are people out there that are consumed by these kind of psychological demons, The theory would be that you could recognize them if you knew the people around you. But in a mass society, in the big city, you don't know all the people that live in your apartment block or that live in your city block or that live in your borough, right? How many thousands and thousands of people live in Bensonhurst in Brooklyn? Do you personally know them all? Can you vouch for them all? Can you say, well, I would trust them to be around my daughter. You can't. It's impossible. And so again, this is one of the reasons that the city seems so scary, so anxiety-causing to people in the early 20th century. Now, the metropolis doesn't just affect its inhabitants in terms of fear. One can argue that its psychological impact goes really much further than this. Imagine yourself for a moment In the center of a big city. What do your senses pick up on? Of course, as human beings, sight is our most powerful uh, sense. It's the one that we first use to try to appreciate things, to try to understand things. But if I dropped you in the middle of Times Square in New York City, or if I put you in the middle of Paris, or London, or Warsaw, it doesn't matter which big city we're talking about, wouldn't your sense of sight be overwhelmed? But if you've never been to the big city and I drop you in there, aren't you just like, it's not even that it's, it's, there's so much to see, so much motion, so many things moving, so many lights, cars, people. How do you keep track of it all? How do you process it all? There's so many visual stimuli that are not just moving as it were, but the buildings, right? Don't you want to look up and, and you know, if you're next to the World Trade Center, If you're next to the Eiffel Tower, if you're next to these giant structures, isn't your eye drawn sort of upwards? Don't you want to look and just see the the kind of miracle of it? Then, of course, you're not looking where you're going. Think about the modern city with all of its screens, with all of the shops, with all of the things going on. Think about the craziness, right? The person talking to himself. Look at the, the beautiful women. Look at the powerful rich people. There's so much going on in the city. We can't take it all in. We can't process it. Of course, humans don't just rely on the idea of sight. We also use our power, our sense of hearing. Close your eyes in the big city for a moment. What do you hear? You can't hear a single person, a single animal, a car. You hear all of it. You hear machinery and trucks and sirens. Think about the sense of smell. What does the city smell like? Well, there are good smells in the city. You might smell bakeries. You might smell food. Go to New York City. A lot of good ethnic food in New York City. Smell that Indian food. Smell the spices. Smell the Mexican food or the Cuban food. All right, So many smells that we can take in. Of course, if you go to a city like New Orleans, you walk down the street, it's Bourbon Street, did this with my kids a couple years ago when they were uh, pretty small. It was the middle of the day, so, you know, not anything crazy going on. First thing my daughter says is, Ew, this is gross. It smells like pee. And unfortunately, walking around a big city, you will smell the smell of urine. Not just from humans, but also animals, right? we got lots of animals running around. The point is that cities are full of stimuli. And at a certain scale, those stimuli can be Overwhelming. Now, to combat this sensory overload, inhabitants in the big city, the German sociologist Georg Simmel noted in a very famous 1903 essay on life in the metropolis, Simmel argued, we have to develop mechanisms in order to survive life in the big city. It is, in a way, not just an urban jungle metaphorically, but almost literally, it is like being in the jungle. And so we need a psychological way of dealing with this overstimulation. Zimmel argued further, in a world of so many people, you can't develop the type of close personal relationships that develop in a small community where, again, people truly know each other. I'm using a lot of different references. I know a lot of them are American-centered, and I apologize for that, but they really just illustrate so well some of the points I'm trying to make. Some of you out there are like me, big fans of the show Stranger Things on Netflix. Do you remember in the first season where uh, the mom played by Winona Ryder is running out of money and so she has to get a kind of loan to to help her buy some stuff and she's talking to the the guy that owns the store she works at which is like a kind of a convenience store and the the guy is at first like well I'm not going to advance you money on your wages and she's like I've worked here for so long you know me come on give, give me the advance on my paycheck the guy does it because he knows her, because he has a personal relationship with her. How well does that work in the big city when you have, again, hundreds of employees, when you have more and more people that are moving around more quickly, and basically they don't have time to create these big personal relationships. So instead, what Zimmel argued is the city mind has to become a more and more calculating one. People in the city, he wrote, develop quote, a purely matter-of-fact attitude that is often combined with an unrelenting hardness. So basically, because people can't develop personal relationships, because I can't just walk into my local CVS and say, hey, my daughter has a fever today. Um, I don't have the money at the moment to buy it. Can Can we make a trade? Can we barter? Can I buy it on credit and I'll just pay you back? Because I can't do this, everything has to be based on money. And the more and more things are based on money, the less and less personal they are, the less and less humane they are. Right? If I'm evaluating should I advance someone their paycheck, I'm not thinking of that person as mom with suffering kid who's going through a hard time or husband divorced her, blah, blah, blah. I'm making a cold, calculated rational decision where the humanity gets read out. So again, in a larger sense, Zimmel is kind of complaining, the more and more things are in the big city, the more they have to be organized, coordinated, rationalized. And so what happens to the individual as they become sort of a cog in a machine? What happens to the individual in a mass society where your individual personality, values, Characteristics, attributes, all of that gets eliminated or kind of read out of the story. Another thing that happens, of course, is that we kind of become dead to the world around us. I mentioned that there is homelessness that is more visible in cities, large cities, than they are in smaller towns. Well, if you go to Manhattan and you walk by a homeless person, how many times do people just walk by them? And they don't really even see the person. They don't stop, like the guy from Humans of New York did, to say, well, you know, what is your story? Why are you homeless? What, what happened to you? What can I do to help you? Instead, there's a tendency to look at the homeless and not even acknowledge that they're there. You just walk right past them. You just ignore them. Now, there's a lot more we could get into in terms of Zimmel's specific argument. It's it's a fantastic essay. I highly recommend reading it if you uh, ever get the chance to. But the main point, again, that he was emphasizing was the way that urban centers in the 20th century have begun to swallow up the individual, to force them into a variety of actions or attitudes that, again, are essentially limiting their humanity. How do you assert yourself in a sea of people? How do you control the sounds outside your window when there are literally 5,000 people within earshot of you? Most of whom you don't know. How can you ensure that your kids don't encounter a drug dealer or get distracted by a movie theater or get swindled by a street performer or a salesman? As Zimmel put it, in each of these same fundamental motives was at work Namely, the resistance of the individual to being leveled, swallowed up in the social technological mechanism. Now, to some extent, some of what we've just been talking about might seem a little overblown to us today. After all, we live in a world defined by its urban quality. But two relatively new developments at the start of the 20th century might help us get a sense of how contemporaries perceived the negative advance of technology and urbanization. And the first of these items that we want to talk about today is the idea of advertising. Now, most of you probably don't think much of ads because you're so saturated by them that, again, just like we were talking about with homelessness, you see so many ads, how many times do you actually look at what they have or look at what they're saying? Think about social media. How many of you really look at the ads on Facebook? How many of you have looked at the ads on Twitter? Um, I'm less familiar with Instagram and, and TikTok and things like that. But you know, you're bombarded by ads all the time. All kinds of stuff. Well, buy this, buy this, right? <laughs> when you watch TV, how many of you actually sit there and think about the commercials versus oh, the commercials on? Okay, I'm pulling out my phone. I'm going to look at other stuff. I'm going to check sports scores. Look at social media, right? We just kind of tune out a lot of advertising. So why do all these ad companies keep doing it? If if I just scroll past the ads on Facebook or on, uh, again, Twitter, why do people keep spending money on it? Now, an ad exec would probably say, well, even if you don't think you're looking at it, even if you're not sitting there going, oh, wow, I saw this car commercial. Now I have to buy a BMW. It does nevertheless have a psychological effect on you, even if you are not trying to pay attention to it. Now, we could describe this as being psychologically manipulating. But the basic idea is that advertisers are trying to get us to change our behavior. There is something a little underhanded about it. Now, in the United States, in in Europe, in many parts of the world, that's fine. Advertising is a game. Advertising is, is, you know, fishing. It's trying to catch people. But it's seen as legitimate. And I'm not arguing that it shouldn't be legitimate. I'm just saying there is a manipulative side to advertising. It's not just something that is is just neutral. Now, advertising obviously exists before the 20th century. People, especially the beginning of the 18th and 19th centuries, the way that you advertise is you put an ad in the newspaper and you say, this is what I'm selling. Here's some text. Maybe there'll be an image of like, you know, say you're selling rocking chairs, so there's an image of your rocking chair. But advertising tends to be fairly limited, and again, it's only really occurring mainly in things like newspapers. They also tend to focus on specific industries. Things like books and newspapers make a lot of sense for advertising books and newspapers because, you know, the person is already using it. Home products and medicines are also something that as industrialization takes place become increasingly popular as the uh, focus of ads, of what you're trying to sell via ads. And then, of course, you also have posted posters. Although, again, before the middle of the 19th century, most of your posters that you're posting are just text. And as any good ad exec will tell you today, if you're just posting in text, if you're just putting up a poster and it's just text, that doesn't catch the eye as well as an image or a video Uh, or painting or something like that, right? We want something visual today to really grab hold of us. Now, things began to change around the turn of the century as advertising became more integral to ordinary business practices. The first independent ad agency, for example, was founded in Berlin in 1897. And by the end of the 1920s, most major firms had in-house departments dedicated to the idea of advertising. At the same time, the business of advertising became increasingly visual rather than text-based. Now, one of the most historically successful ad campaigns from the 19th century is uh, launched by a company called Pears Soap. It was designed by a man named Thomas Barrett. And basically, it associates—these uh, these ads frequently feature like young women or men, and they're, they're, they're shaving, they're bathing— um, but it basically associates the soap with the idea of the middle-class domestic value of cleanliness and order. Some of them are a little racist as well. Some of them feature uh, the idea that you know civilization and cleanliness are linked. And so here is the white man who is you know, bathing regularly with his pair of soap. He has civilization. The African who doesn't own pair of soap doesn't have it. So again, we start to see More and more effort being put into the artistic side, the visual side of advertising, starting about the middle of the 19th century, all over Europe, and to some extent, the United States as well. Now, by the time you get to 1900, another tactic for drawing consumers' attention was the use of the electric light, especially at night. Now, remember, the electric light is relatively new here, right? People haven't seen them for that long, maybe 10, 20 years. Putting electric lights on things lights them up. It draws attention to it. You, you look at a sign, you go, oh, wow, what's going on over there? Even today, you know, why do we have, think about in a big city, a place like Times Square, uh, think about places in like Tokyo. Why do we have all of these giant billboards and all the huge TV screens? Because putting all those visual images, all those flashing lights, it draws our attention whether you want to look at it or not. And that's a huge part of advertising is trying to draw the viewer's interest, even if they don't necessarily want to look. And so electric lights are a great way to do that. One of the uh, the most incredible, boldest ideas in terms of advertising, for example, is in 1925, the car mogul André Citroën somehow convinced Parisian authorities to let him put not just lights on the Eiffel Tower— but to literally put his name in lights on the Eiffel Tower. And so for about 10 years, until 1934, the Eiffel Tower actually had the letters Citroën spelled out with about 250,000 light bulbs on the outside of it. So electric advertising in the 1920s is new, it's powerful, it draws your attention, whether you like it or not. Um, Again, just to give you a statistic that shows you how popular this is, by 1929, the city of Berlin has over 3,000 electric ads. Now, obviously, they're not as big as the Eiffel Tower, but still, imagine walking down the street and you're just bombarded by visual stimulus after visual stimulus after visual stimulus. So for urbanites in the 1920s, the perception of what ads are And what they're trying to do is much different than our sort of reaction where usually we're kind of indifferent to ads. Occasionally, you know, if you think about the Super Bowl, for example, we actually celebrate ads. People will will go out of their way to watch ads during the Super Bowl because they're so clever. But at this time, people are, are, again, much more wary of what's going on. These ads are perceived as being crass, as being soulless, right? What are they trying to get you to do? In a clumsy way, they're just trying to manipulate you into spending money. It's all about profit. It's all about the desire to kind of to, to focus on people's weaknesses as opposed to inspiring them to do good things. And so there's kind of a hostility uh, that develops to them. Uh, just before World War I, for example, several German municipalities passed laws against, quote, the disfigurement of regions with exceptional landscapes. This is basically the idea that if you're going to drive into a national park, if you're going to drive along some beautiful forest or up to some beautiful mountain, the last thing you want to see is a bunch of ads. Right? If you think about beautiful, iconic landscapes, what if we took the Grand Canyon and then we just put a bunch of electric TV advertisements on the side of the Grand Canyon? What if we took beautiful Yosemite Valley and we just started building giant billboards in the valley to try to get people to buy toothpaste? And most of us would say, well, that's pretty crass. That's pretty dumb. We don't don't want our landscape spoiled. We don't want the beauty of nature spoiled by this kind of crass advertising stuff. And so this is basically what happens in many European cities. In 1909, for example, even though it's dominated by political liberals, the government of Berlin bans putting ads on certain historical sites or in certain key areas such as Platz, because they're trying to protect the aesthetics of the urban landscape. In other cases, people don't ban ads, but there's definitely, again, this kind of hostility to them. As the Viennese economist Victor Mataya wrote in nineteen ten, quote the convenience urge, sense of beauty, vanity, every trait in human nature that makes it easier to make mistakes in the calculating of economic things, every inclination is spied out with a keen eye and made serviceable for the purpose of acquisition. So again, advertising isn't fair game, isn't this? legitimate business that we would mostly recognize it as today, advertising is seeking out human weaknesses and exploiting them for profit. Again, just to give you a sense of this manipulative side of advertising in the 1920s, a 1929 German ad for mouthwash, for example, showed a woman being shunned by her husband. And the text reads aloud, why doesn't he kiss me? And then it counsels below, the most beautiful woman won't be desirable if unclean breath flows from her mouth. Of course, the ad then gives a remedy. Odol mouthwash. So how are they selling the idea of mouthwash? They're not just saying, oh, this will make your breath smell nice. Oh, this will you know make your teeth shiny. Oh, this is a positive product. They're selling it by appealing to your deepest fears to the woman who's looking at it to her vanity to her idea that the modern ills of your life they can only be solved by consumption how do you deal with fear you spend money now this is not something that we're unfamiliar with today right you see these ads oh you've got to buy gold got to buy gold paper money will be worthless cryptocurrency you know all that Got to buy this thing that I'm selling you. Sell it through fear. Sell it through our weaknesses, our desire to be desirable, our desire to look a certain way. If we don't look a certain way, we might not find love. We might not get the things that we want in life. I'm a parent. Once you become a parent, you have so many anxieties, so many deep seated concerns for your kids. Am I raising them right? Am I feeding them right? Am I giving them enough, you know, good values? Well, here comes Madison Avenue and the advertising agencies to say, here are these things that you can do to alleviate your fears. Do you have a daughter? Do you, do you want her to grow up and be happy and, and live in a society filled with equality? Well, well, then you need to expose her to STEM because STEM is a male-dominated field. And if we don't expose little girls to STEM, then, you know, we're going to have problems down the road. And there is some truth to that argument, right? There is this, this inequality or has historically been some inequality. So what's the answer? Buy this packet, buy this book, buy this podcast, buy this course, buy this, uh, you know, play set. So the answer to anxiety is consumption. And in the 1920s, there are a lot of people that that makes very nervous in Europe. There's an idea that this is soulless, that it's hollow, that it's manipulative, and so advertising is the problem. Now, another place where modernity, commercialization, and the big city come together was the department store, which first began to flourish again in the 1920s. Now, again, the first department stores predate this. You can argue that there are a number that open up in Paris in the middle of the 19th century. We're talking about stores like Au Bon Marché, Printon. Londoners can think about something like Harrods by the 1880s. But it's in the 1920s that the scale and scope of these stores expand tremendously, such that they become symbols of the new commercial spirit of the 1920s. They became, in the words of historian Eric Weitz, temples of mass consumption. Attracting customers not only with their low prices which, of course, they have an advantage over smaller enterprises, but economies of scale. But they also use new technologies and new architecture to lure in customers. Now, we live in a digital age where, you know, your danger of getting lured in is probably Amazon pops up with the deal of the day or you go on some website and there's a flashing ad. You go, oh, I got to have that. I got to buy that thing. But in this period, most shopping is still done, obviously, in person. Now, prior to the 1920s, you go to the store to buy whatever it is you want. There isn't a lot of external advertising or an external ability to see what's there. But in the 1920s, we start building department stores, and department stores are like palaces of luxury. If you walk into a department store today... It sounds a little weird saying this, right, if you've been into like a Sears or a J.C. Penney. But if you go into a European store, if you go into Court Inglés in Spain, if you go into Galleria Kaufhof in Germany, if you go into um, Printemps or other stores like that in, uh, in places like uh, France, if you go into these department stores, they're luxurious. There's the perfume counter that smells nice. There's the polished floors. There's the escalators, which are new in the 1920s, right? That's fancy stuff Get an escalator. Wow. So the process of shopping, all these people, they're going to wait on you. Wait a minute. I'm a middle-class person. What? I don't have servants, but here come all the servants once I walk into the department store. Sir, you would look brilliant in this new suit. This really brings out, I don't know, your eyes, the darkness of your hair. This makes you look like a rock star. Maybe the most important part of the department store isn't what's on the inside, but it's what's on the outside. Because of the invention of glass and steel and the new building techniques with reinforced concrete, one of the things that we can start to do is build these giant display windows. And so for people in the 1920s, you're walking down the street, you can't tune out. The commercialism, the voicing, bye, 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 bye. You're walking down the street, and oh my God, isn't that the most beautiful fur coat you've ever seen? Wouldn't you look stunning in that fur coat? Wouldn't you be able to show off to all your friends the wealth and affluence and comfort that you've developed after World War I? And so the display case isn't just a chance to, oh, well, you know, here's some fishing poles that one could buy. The display case is almost like a fishing lure. It is there to make you look at it, to make you start to imagine, to appeal to that side of you that Freud would describe as the id, that little child voice. And you're going, I want, I want, I want, I want. All of a sudden, the department store display case is introducing to you things that you never knew that you wanted or needed But because of the way that they're set up, because we have electric lights that are displaying them, because we we have, again, this emphasis, because they're displayed in luxury. They activate our minds against our own rational sense of what is valuable and not, and they kind of force us or manipulate us into spending money. Put this in a more anthropological way. To shop now not only becomes the act of purchasing goods that are needed, but it now becomes a performative act that shows everyone else your class status. I, as someone who am shopping at a department store, I as a woman walking down the street that goes, Oh, that that new purse looks beautiful. I think I'm just gonna buy that. I'm not just buying it because I want the new purse. I'm buying it because I'm showing everyone else that I'm someone that has the power to just buy a new purse because I just felt like it. So, again, we have this modernism coming in from the department store. For people shopping in the department store, for the woman or man who gets to go in and and say, I'm going to buy this really fancy thing. I'm going to look really fancy. It's a heck of an experience. You know, we keep saying, well, you know, it's it's your id that's saying you want this. It's your kind of irrational side. It's your weakness. Yeah, we have weaknesses, but when we satisfy those weaknesses, usually makes us happy. I have a weakness, as my wife would tell you, for ice cream. I love ice cream. There are times that I should not be eating ice cream, but I do it anyways. And then I feel good when I eat the ice cream. So for these people, modernity is rewarding. It is pleasurable. The idea of living life for pleasure is not just for the aristocrats anymore. More and more, it's becoming available for middle-class people. But at the same time, this is also destructive. These department stores don't just open up new markets. They cannibalize, to use a kind of loaded word, they cannibalize from Stores and shops and markets that are already there If You live in the modern united states a way to think about this is the walmart problem When walmart moves into your town It is good in the sense that you will be able to buy things cheaper Right walmart comes in and they've got economies of scale Walmart can in some cases dictate the prices that they will buy goods from uh, other companies There's a very good story out there about Vlasic Pickles and how Walmart basically told us, you're going to sell us in these quantities at these prices where you're not going to make much money, if at all, but you have to do it because if you don't, your market share is going to collapse and no one will know what a Vlasic Pickle is anymore. Walmart also destroys local businesses. If I have a local hardware store, why would you spend more money at my hardware store when there will be a better selection For a cheaper price at a Walmart. If you're the consumer, Walmart is great. Walmart is fun. If you are someone involved in a business, competing business, Walmart is destructive. Think about it in the larger picture. How many mom and pop grocery stores are out there still? If you don't live in a big city like New York, there aren't hardly any because the larger grocery store chains have moved in they buy and sell at economies of scale, and they have destroyed the mom-and-pop grocery store for the most part. Of course, ironically, now Walmart and Amazon and some others are coming in and destroying the grocery store industry. So, uh, you know, big fish eats medium fish, eats smaller fish. You know, this, this is an old story that continues. Now, department stores are not the only signs of modernity that drastically altered the topography of Europe's great metropolises. Another major change was the rise of mass entertainment, which focused not on the bourgeois sensibility or traditional forms of art like the opera, the museum. Let's go to an exposition of paintings, monsieur. But again, there's kind of a crassness to it. There's a kind of idea of consumption, pleasure. We're, not, we're moving away from sophistication into just kind of like the most basic, most crass things that are out there. Um, I was watching the Lego movie with my kids, and there's another example of this. One of the jokes in the Lego movie is that they just have a show called I Forgot My Pants, or, or it's, maybe it's called Where Are My Pants? And so the joke in every scene is this guy comes out, he's not wearing pants, and he says, honey, where's my pants? Ha ha ha! Similar type of joke in the uh, movie Idiocracy, where it's in the future and people are stupid, and the big comedy show is just people farting at each other. We look at that, we go, well, that's really lowbrow humor. It's not really even funny. Uh, it is, we, should, we should not do that. That doesn't make any sense. So in the 1920s, there's this idea that, of course, we want highbrow. We want traditional forms of culture. We're talking about literature. We're talking about, uh, again, opera. We're talking about uh, painting. We're talking about, you know, the, the sculpture. These are the appropriate forms of art to consume. But by the 1920s, we start to see a new challenge that is offered by something called the motion picture or to a greater extent, the idea of the cinema. Now, we've talked about this kind of already, what, you know, what film was like before, uh, especially before World War I. But what starts to happen in the 1920s is we start seeing the construction of these grand film palaces. Things like uh, Leon Gaumont, uh, self-named 6,000-seat theater built in 1911 in the city of Paris. These cinemas get to be known as film palaces. And it's not just because, oh, this is a marketing technique, we'll call it a palace, but they are beautiful inside. It is in some ways like going to the opera, except now you're going to go watch a movie. Now, these things exist again, starting around 1910 to 1915, but it's in the post-World War I era, the 1920s, that they truly explode. So consider, for example, that by the time you get to the Bolshevik Revolution, St. Petersburg already had 25 cinemas on its major street, Nevsky Prospect. And there were a total of 300 movie theaters scattered throughout the capital city. So the cinema is modernity, but now we're going to have it at these kind of palaces. Now you're going to see it on the street. Now it's going to be harder to resist. As you walk by and you see the movie poster, the movie poster and the marquee, and they're outlined with some kind of picture, and electric lights, and the lights move, and you're just kind of drawn into it, and I can't help myself. Another form of mass entertainment that, again, exists a little bit before the war, but really explodes in popularity afterwards, is related to dance. As we noted in our previous episode, the start of the 20th century sees a revolution in this field, as dancers moved away from structured dances like reels and quadrilles towards more emotive dances like the Charleston or the Foxtrot. Now, as this revolution takes place, publicans moved to meet the new demand for space to dance in. In London, for example, several clubs such as the Lotus, Murray's, and the 400 Club began to clear their tables after the evening meal for dancing crowds only. Some hotels start doing this as well. Once World War I ends, and again, the popularity of dance reaches a point, that entrepreneurs began to build dance-only facilities. In London in 1919, we have the construction of the Hammersmith Palace, which basically is one of the first nightclubs, right? The idea that we are going to have a place for people to go at night, and it is exclusively about dancing. Now, amazingly, uh, of course, this is during Prohibition, so maybe it's not so amazing, but to the modern mind, amazingly, they did not serve alcohol. Although they do practice the time-honored club tradition of only allowing a select group of people in that you try to build up this crowd of people, you know, waiting in line for an hour to get into the most exclusive club. I've never understood that phenomenon myself. I would like to just go in and dance or drink or do whatever, Uh, But there's people that are like, well, I want to go to the most exclusive place. And so this idea of, you know, having bouncers, of creating large lines, this is something that the Hammersmith um, helps to pioneer in the immediate post-World War I era. It is enormously popular. By the middle of the 1920s, there are over 11,000 dance halls in the UK. Or again, to give them a kind of more modern parlance, we're talking about 11,000 nightclubs Dance clubs, that sort of thing. Now, most of us would probably greet these developments with enthusiasm. And to a certain extent, obviously, if we go from 1 to 11,000 in the space of uh, maybe six or seven years, there's plenty of Europeans who are looking at dance clubs as very favorable as well. But not everyone agreed that this was all good. Consider for a moment that unlike the playhouse or the opera, the movie theater, And the dance club are much more egalitarian spaces. Yes, clubs can be exclusive, right? I just mentioned how they have VIP areas, how uh, they can make people wait in lines. The idea that the bouncer is going to let some people in, but not others. But once you get into a dance club, there's not really strong ways of distinguishing or or, uh, showing one's social class, right? If you go into the cinema, it's dark. You don't look at the people next to you and go, Well, I wonder what that woman is wearing. Because you're looking at the screen. You don't get necessarily better seats. It's not like a baseball game where, you know, if you go to the cinema, the center row is reserved for people that really are going to pay a lot of money for it. Now, another issue that comes up in the cinema or in the dance club is one that I'm sure most modern parents and teenagers can identify with, which is the idea of supervision. Why is it that teenagers love to go on dates, chaperone dates, to the movie theater? Isn't it because while mom and dad is kind of sitting in the back, they're not looking at you who are sitting, you know, someplace else potentially, right? You're in the dark. Everyone is seated. You can't really see everything. Uh, Obviously, the film itself is distracting. And so going to the movies is a fun teenage activity because you don't have to be supervised by your parents. For teenagers, that's obviously a thing that they like. But for parents, well, that becomes concerning. My son and daughter, what if they're going to the movie theater? They're going by themselves or they're going with some friends. Eh, Okay, maybe it's not such a big deal. But what if they're meeting a member of the opposite sex at the movie theater? What is going to happen to the children at the theater if no one can supervise what they're doing? Some of you, of course, are kind of laughing at me going, wow, you sound like a helicopter parent. You sound like someone that's really uptight. This is necessarily my view. This is the, the view of people at the time. But I'm not exaggerating here. Um, you have a number of cities in the early days of the movie theater that actually banned children from going because they think this could be a really kind of salacious, a, a really kind of liminal space. And we don't like the idea of kids being unsupervised. In 1908, for example, the city of Hamburg doesn't ban children from going to the equivalent of R-rated movies, right? They don't have a rating system at this point. They just ban children from going to the movie theater without their parents. In 1912, the city of Köln in Germany bans kids from movie theaters altogether. Finally, of course, there are then, just as there are now, moral concerns about what people are seeing on the screen. We're all familiar with this concept today, but in 1912 was the first time that the British decided to create an oversight board because we have to make sure that we're seeing morality in films, or more importantly, that we're not seeing immorality in films. Okay, we've just spent an awful lot of time talking about the anxieties caused by the metropolis, but I want to end our discussion by bringing back in the futuristic element to the story. Because metropolis is not just the idea of a big city. It is the idea of the most technologically advanced place, the most culturally productive place. There are aspects of it that are incredible. We started this podcast off by talking about New York City and how centrally important New York City is, not just economically speaking or politically speaking, but in terms of culture. How many movies are set in New York? How many things like the Macy's Parade? Or, uh, you know, things about film. How, how many, just the, the idea of New York. How many of you go and eat New York-style pizza? Not because you live in New York, you have connections to New York, but then just put New York on it. Just like they do with uh, artisanal, right? Anything that's artisanal or Tuscan, it must always be better. So the metropolis, again, it's not just a big city. It is modernity itself. And this sense of wonder is not lost on contemporaries, even if then as now, technology as we've seen inspired fear and anxiety about what it could lead to. I'm recording this in the spring of 2023, as I mentioned. Um, chat, GPT, a new version has just come out. Machine learning AI is something that is, uh, is not just a, a hypothetical anymore. It is happening. Social media is not run by someone coming up with an algorithm. It's run by machines that we're told to learn human behavior and have created algorithms based on human behavior. So what happens if we teach machines to think for themselves? Won't they eventually turn against us? Can it lead to disaster? We've obviously seen this theory or plot in various films. One thinks here of the Terminator franchise, right? They invent some kind of defense system and Then the defense system decides that human beings are the problem. You see it also in some of the Matrix movies, uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. Well, these were all anticipated to some extent by a 1927 film, also by Fritz Lang, which is known as the movie Metropolis. The movie takes place in a futuristic metropolis, sharply divided by social class. On the surface, a group of industrial managers live the good life, surrounded by machines and technology that make for a comfortable life. Beneath the surface, however, the machines are only able to function due to the sacrifices of the working classes, who exhaust themselves in service to the machines. One classic uh, part of the movie, for example, has this kind of giant clock with numbers on it, and the numbers are kind of attached to a light. And so basically what happens is the lights will, will move around and the worker has to adjust the hands on the clock to meet where the light is lit up. And then the light will change every like second or two. So this basically continues throughout the day until eventually the worker is exhausted. They have to kind of like duck out of the way and another worker will jump in and start trying to, uh, to do the work. And so that way there's a continuity of the machine's functioning. But it's also incredibly dehumanizing work, it's mechanical work, and in a kind of ironic way, the human being has become robot. The message of the film is clear. Industrialization continues to consume the working classes as if they were animals or, again, is making them into robots. Now, the main plot of the film revolves around the efforts of the surface leader's son, Freder, to help resolve these tensions. And in a classic trope, he sees a girl named Maria from the lower classes, falls in love with her, and launches a rebellion against his father in the name of bringing social harmony. And if this sounds like the plot to Avatar, it's because it literally is the plot to Avatar and many, many other Hollywood films throughout the decades, right? This story of the kind of uh, wayward son that realizes the error of his ways, joins forces with a girl from Uh, whatever the the other group is, and leads the rebellion. Again, many, many movies have this plot. Now, in Metropolis, complicating matters, Freder's father has one of his employees invent a false Maria, a robot who ends up convincing the workers to destroy all the machines, who also happens to keep the city safe. So the machines are there to keep the city safe. Maria, the the fake Maria, uh, the love interest, the robotic version of it, convinces all the workers to rise up, and then this provides a pretext for a crackdown by the kind of elite class. Now, I don't want to give the end of the film away, because it is an absolute Hollywood classic. You can go and watch it. Uh, I forget which streaming service it's on right now, but it's definitely available on one of them. But the basic point is that we see here all the fears and anxiety about the metropolis coming to bear in the film fear of what the new technology might unleash, the continued problem of violence and social relations, and to some extent, the mechanization and dehumanization that accompanies modern life. And again, we saw this in the essay by Zimmel. Of course, as I just mentioned, these are not issues or feelings we are entirely unaware of in the 21st century. Then, just as now, they evoked powerful emotional responses responses which help explain the radicalism of the era. But we'll get into this more again in future episodes. For now, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed History Off the Page, please let your friends or family know about it. This is, uh, dare I say, an artisanal product, maybe not Tuscan, maybe a little bit more New York, but uh, it's something that I work on pretty much uh, myself, that I develop myself, do my own research. Uh, I don't really have a production team There's not really a budget for advertising. Uh, So basically the way that we spread interest and awareness in the podcast is through word of mouth. Um, So if you like History Off the Page, please recommend it. Maybe make a post on social media about it. Tell your friends about it. Uh, We would really appreciate that. You can also find out things to do to help us uh, or resources uh, about the topics we discuss on our website, www.historyoffthepage.com. Again, this is where you can find references and recommendations related to today's lecture. So that's our show for today. I hope you'll join us next time as we take history off the page.